It's the Money Mitch effect. And you probably don't hear any music right now. Is it a technical glitch? No. Did I change the format of the show? Maybe some gospel, some rock? Nope. The truth is, I only do cold opens when something extraordinary happens. Like the Cleveland Indians making the World Series. That was pretty cool. Or, for example, when Roger Federer wins his 18th major, the Australian Open, a 2017 instant classic over Rafael Nadal, 18 majors for the Swiss Maestro. Yeah, I'm pretty pumped. Today's show. Woo! All right, now I'm ready. Let's cue the music up. Welcome to the Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels, your host on this beautiful Tuesday morning, last day of January, and we're going to go out with a bang. As promised, I will get into the Federer and the Dog Classic, Roger Federer, 18 major, six months off, he's back, he's a champion once again. I'm going to talk to George Pinozian about that to start the show. Who are some other winners and losers down in Melbourne, what Serena's 23rd major means, and what the state of women's tennis looks like going forward in 2017. And then I'm going to talk to Mike Indergaard, my buddy from Minnesota, Slew classmate of mine. We're going to talk NHL action. It was the All-Star Weekend out here in Los Angeles. The skills competition, NHL 100. Chris Pronger shoving Justin Bieber into the boards, putting smiles on millions of Americans' faces. And we'll talk about some second-half season storylines in the National Hockey League. It's the Money Mitch Effect. We're all feeling good today, right? Let's go. All right. Now on the Money Mitch Effect, it's the return of George Pinozian. Welcome back Money to the Mitch. show. And George, I'll be honest, I've, I've been smiling for the past 24 hours. It's been, uh, it's been a pretty, pretty good day. Pretty good 24 plus hours for this guy. Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't blame you, man. That was a heck of a win for, for Roger. But, you know, let's be real. It's, if Joker or Murray were there, none of, the, none of this dream final would have happened. But, you know, there's, there's a, a bit of an asterisk on the win. Okay, we're going to... Regardless, it's a remarkable win, regardless. Okay, we're going to say that the first half, I agree with, you know, if Joker and Murray there, the outcome probably changes. But no asterisk, tough, tough crap. Those guys were in the no, draw, definitely. they didn't make it. It happens, and uh, it was unbelievable what happened. To quote one of my favorite, uh, the legendary uh, singer, it was just out of this world, the final. It was fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> Roger you, really, you know, the match really took me to another, another world, you know? It did. I don't know if it was Jupiter or Mars, but Roger Federer is an 18-time major champion. He beat Rafael Nadal in five sets, winning the first, third, and fifth sets just to get an idea, George, of how back and forth this was. It was always within the margins of either guy winning, Federer won, and we talked about this tournament for a long time, George. The final, it was the dream final, the throwback final of the two, arguably the two most successful tennis players of all time. But going into it, you know as well as I do that just because it's a good matchup on paper, it doesn't always live up. How shocked were you that it was this epic? Did you expect something this close, George, or were you pleasantly surprised that it came down to the wire? No, I, I, I'm not surprised. I, I was expecting the match to be be as legendary as it was. And, and coming into it, to be honest, I literally had 
no idea who was going to win. Like, it was just, it was so unpredictable because you really didn't know what to expect from either of those guys just based on what they were doing at, at this point of their careers. And, and, you know, both of them coming off injuries and coming off time off. So, and both of them being a surprise for, for both to be in the final. I didn't know. I mean, if I had to pick who I thought was going to win, I, I really thought Nadal was going to win just because his defense the entire tournament was just spectacular that I just thought, like, no one can get past the Spanish Bull. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. And it, and it was looking that way in the fifth set. We, you know, Nadal up a break, and then I don't know what happened. Everything just turned. And I'm happy for Federer, definitely, and it's a good moment in his career. And I want to talk about what he said during the trophy ceremony. Oh, we're going to – hey, think, we're, um, hey, believe yeah. me. Believe me. We will get okay. to all of it. But I do want to talk about going into the match. I thought it would be good from the sense that – like you said, at this point in their careers, we're not sure what to expect. And I actually did think Federer would win a close one against Nadal just because they're not in the prime of their careers. It was both guys a little post past their prime, and the aging factor matters. I think both those guys aren't as good as they were, still very good. You could tell, though, that the heart was there, that they were willing themselves through tough times, that maybe the tennis wasn't at peak of what they were used to, but... You know, their determination was there. But let's start first, George, with, you know, how this match got going. A lot of people brought this up. Our good friend and Tennis Channel host, Lee Shiras, brought up the fact that it felt like Federer had to win the first set. I completely agree with this, and I think he knew it going out. I think that first set was Federer knowing he can't fall behind early. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and then I think going from, from there... You saw a guy in Rafael Nadal, while Fed's service game was on early, I thought he played a crisp first set. I thought he was hitting a lot of winners. The difference I saw in the second set, and you know, I'm obviously looking forward to what you have to say here, but Nadal's defense, the defense that you said carried him in the tournament, it really picked up. I thought there was a big difference in his movement set one to two, and I thought that was what caused Federer to make more unforced errors, really by a landslide from sets two to one. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Nadal definitely in the second set. The first set was, you know, it was, it was still, it was just a break that Federer won that by just one break, and it was extremely tight. And uh, again, I, it was looking like Nadal was a better player in the first set, kind of until until towards the second half of that. But in the second set, yes, Nadal, Nadal's defense definitely picked up a lot, and just a lot of less air. It almost just felt like he was in the zone, and he just would not miss. And the fact that Nadal can just cover every single spot of the court it just makes him so tough to beat when he's playing like that. And his fitness level just really surprised me in this tournament because yeah. he really kind of looked like the old Rafa. Like that just what made him so tough. Everyone hated playing, hated to play him just because you can't get anything past him. So regardless of how well you're playing, you really have to go for a winner every single time. And uh, I was I was really surprised uh, on the third set when Ralph, uh, Roger took it 6-1. Yeah. So that was surprising. You know, that's that was kind of a beat-down set. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, both these guys, I think, moved unbelievably well, like better than you would think oh, guys yeah. in their age would move. Federer was moving as good as we've seen him in a while, and Nadal really picked up his fitness level. We watch a lot of basketball, George. You mentioned him in his zone. Nadal has those, like, Curry, Russell Westbrook moments where he's just unconscious. Yeah. But that third set, he didn't hold serve once. That was the flip side of Nadal, where maybe he's not yeah. as even as consistent of a player as he used to be. 
Well, that, that's been his problem for a very long time now with his serve, kind of not not being able to hold it. And it's it's really been more of a problem, of course, in the last couple of years, kind of like in his, watching him his decline. But um, Nadal's never been like a power server. I've never looked at Nadal as this incredible server. Like, you know, even if you look at the stats of the match, I think like Federer had like 20 aces compared to Rafa's like four or something. So that was definitely... Uh, a big plus for Federer. Right, and then you go into the fourth set where Fed's, you know, he's feeling confident after set three, dominant. You think, okay, this is it. He can continue on. He can continue at the clip he's serving. Nadal just completely flipped the script. I don't know what reserves he was digging into. You thought he was on empty, George, but he kept digging deeper. And the shot he hit to win the 4-1 game was one of the best shots I've ever seen in my life. After Federer hit a backhand short, Nadal just flicks his wrist and hits the winner. That was unbelievable. He was that was him completely being yeah. unconscious. Uh, no, I mean honestly, that that point gave me goosebumps for sure. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, honestly, I like the one thing I think that that surprised me the most about Roger's game. I think is um, is his backhand. Oh my god! Like I think I've never seen Roger play so well to his backhand. And right. um, I, I know Roger's always been a consistent player. Kind of had an all-around game. But you, I, I think at this point, you have to talk about Federer having one of the best backhands in the game because it, it was just beautiful to watch. It was just Gasquet, Wawrinka-like to watch. Yeah, he mixed it up. He would he'd hit the ball deep. He'd hit him short. He'd pick the ball up clean on the rise. I think that was important. And I think it's a good time to bring up the Lubitsch factor, George. I mean, we talked about Carlos Moya, another voice in the room for Nadal. Both these guys have had revivals because I think they've got new people to listen to that know and study the game like Ivan Lubacic does for Federer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he he brought up some great points for, for Federer to kind of capitalize during the match. But one thing I think Fed learned a lot from Lubacic is to be a little bit more effective on the serve and volley because anytime Federer was kind of struggling when he lost momentum, you kind of saw him lean more towards the serve and volley just to kind of get himself back back in it and change things up because like you said he was just consistently changing things you didn't really know what to expect and I think that kind of confused Nadal he was serving volley then Federer just has a great all-around game and, and he just he's so talented and again yeah. like obviously I'm a Rafa fan so it was very heartbreaking for me to, to witness that but you know I'm happy for Federer he's a legend he's the greatest tennis player of all time so yeah, and I think too. I mean, yeah, I mean, Lubitsch also taught Roger to to keep fighting. I, you saw it a couple of key moments. He'd pound on his chest and point to Roger, just oh, yeah. you know, keep fighting. It's similar to Nadal, and I think too. You, you mentioned mixing it up. I think you know, coming in on the serve, uh, serve and volley, baseline with him, but also not getting discouraged. Rafa Nadal is gonna pass you. That's what he does. It's a marathon, not okay. a sprint. When he was passed, he didn't let that get to him, and I think that boded well. As I still sit here talking with George Panosian on the Money Mitch effect, all right, let's talk about set five. And before we do that, actually, let's talk about the crowd, George. I thought the Aussie crowd was one of the best for a big sporting event that I've ever heard. I mean, they were living and dying oh, by yeah. every single point. Oh, yeah, I wish I was there, definitely. <laughs> you know, I, I was trying to, trying to see who they were kind of leaning towards who they wanted to win. I, I, I suspected they were probably more Federer fans, but, you know, you heard a lot of almost Rafa yeah. coming from the crowd, so 
It was pretty mixed, I think, but I mean, probably a little more Roger. Yeah, you're never going to have a crowd, I don't think, in this era larger than Federer, unless you play, you know, Nadal and yeah. Mallorca, or maybe, you know, Roland Garros even. But I thought it was interesting, too. After the after the match, when, when Federer walked around with the trophy, the second court was packed with people just watching it on the Jumbotron. I mean, they could not get enough of him. You see the shots outside, the streets were packed. This was a moment that we might never see again, and I think the Australian crowd knew it, sensed it, and really treated it as such. Yeah, and I'm glad they did, because it, it was just such a special moment for the sport, and everything that these two guys have done within the last 17 years has just really changed. They've changed the face of the sport, and they started just a terrific rivalry that even non-tennis fans got into. You know, it's funny when I see, when I go on Facebook and I see some friends of mine who don't even watch tennis and they're posting comments or posting pictures of Federer and talking about tennis. I got friends texting me about about the match. That's when you know that, yeah. you know, it really touched the heart of not only tennis fans, but just sports fans because people really appreciate that rivalry. And, and you know, even in our last podcast that we talked about, we were like, oh my God, if, if Nadal and Fed make it to the final, that's going to be crazy. And you know what had happened? And we couldn't believe it. We couldn't. It speaks volumes for the sport. These are two classy, well-liked guys. And and you mentioned Fed being happy for him. You know, obviously, I've been a Fed fan since just about day one for his career. But I've grown to respect and and you know like Nadal more as I've gotten older and can appreciate the competition. I, I think both these guys handle themselves so well, even in defeat. I think that's one thing that we'll always be able to take away. I do want to say one thing, though, to start the set. Now, this is where I'm going to try to not be biased at all, George, but I don't understand, quite frankly, the criticism about Federer taking a timeout after set four. I don't know if you disagree. I've heard rumblings that and Pat no, had no, a lot to I, say. I don't, I don't really disagree with you because the guy's 35 years old. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Five-star match. And I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a big deal for him to, to take the time out. Sure, you know, a lot of people can say he might have gotten, you know, since the fact that he went into the locker room, he might have gotten some advice from, you know, from his trainer or from his coach to his trainer, his trainer to him, who knows. But, you know, Nadal's done that plenty of times. So, you know, you can't really argue that. Right. And, and I think during one of the changeovers, the trainer came by to kind of massage his thigh or something yeah. as well. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the criticism. Right. It's not like he, I don't know, stuff, you know, had to have his toe worked on before a changeover. But in all seriousness, it's legal. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's, in, it's in the rules. It's how, if they want to take that rule away, okay. But everybody does it. Federer had a reason to. He had a problem. It's groin leg area. And, and I don't see what the big deal is. I think it just takes, honestly, quite frankly, takes away the focus of such a phenomenal match. But getting back to the tennis... Well, Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, regardless, you know, him taking that time out, it did nothing because Nadal ended up... Yeah. Nadal started the set amazingly, and he was up 3-1 to one with 30 all set serving, about to go up potentially a double break, you know, two points away from a double break. So it, it, that, the criticizing should just stop because that didn't do anything. Right, so as we get back to the tennis you mentioned, Nadal breaks early, starts to carry that momentum over, and then I noticed a trend even before Nadal almost went for the kill shot double break, George. Nadal's serve still wasn't effectively on. He faced a lot of break points early before Fed eventually broke back. Now, to Nadal's credit, he hit winners to get himself out of it. 
but maybe it was wishful thinking on my part, but I noticed that Fed kept getting closer and closer to breaking, the doll was fending him off, but there was vulnerability there. Oh, yeah, I mean, there was, the doll saved, like you said, he saved a few break points until Federer actually broke him back. Some of those points that the doll saved, like some of those shots were just, just jaw-dropping. Honestly, <laughs> I was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just, it was just it was so clutch. But then, like you said, Fredder just kept knocking on the door and um, kept fighting, you know, and, and eventually it, he prevailed. And, you know, obviously Nadal lost the last five games of the, ma- of the match. So mm-hmm. once he got, you know, Fredder got that break, Nadal just lost all momentum. And I, I, I almost want to watch those last three games again because I, I don't know what happened to Nadal. I don't right. know. It's just Fredder. I, I just forget. I need to well, watch it again. I've seen it a few times now. And there's one moment in particular. Obviously, tennis can snowball out of control. There's no coaches yelling out plays. There's no breaks. You can't call a timeout when the going gets really hard. Georgia was love 30 on Nadal's serve. Federer was moving well, hit a winner, I think, on the first point of the game. And he double faulted. And he gave himself three. Federer gave himself three break points as a result. But, you know, he eventually broke on the 30-40 game. That was the one moment where I thought, okay, Nadal's kind of wilting a little bit here. Three chances against Fed in a row. It was impossible for Nadal to fend off all of them. And you know what happened after that, George? Federer's serve came alive. He won the next game love, a lot of quick free points. And I think that's what ultimately swung momentum. Now, it wasn't the end-all, be-all, but I look at that double fault, and then I look at Fed's return return to form at his serve, and I think that kind of swung things. Yeah, that was a crucial point of the fifth set. You know, if, if Nadal wins that point, it's 15-30 as opposed to the love 40. That's a big difference. This match was just, it was just, it was so, the margin, was, it was it was so close. It just could have gone either way. Just There were only literally a couple points that changed the outcome of the match. 100% right. And one of those points, George, to me, a point that I'll never forget as a fan of tennis and as a fan of Roger Federer, was that deuce point at 4-3 on Nadal's serve. The 26-shot rally, Federer hitting an unbelievable backhand, Nadal getting it in the corner, his two-handed backhand that Fed picked off the ground and a flat forehand up the line, almost a squash shot, George. It was, it was beautiful tennis, and I think that was the one where you're like, whoa, watching it at 3 in the morning on the West Coast, that was the one that got me out of my seat, and really, it, was, uh, it gave me flashbacks, gave me goosebumps. Yeah, you know, um, there were multiple, multiple beautiful shots kind of throughout the game, and especially in that fifth set when the nerves were really, really high for both players, and and you could just tell how much it meant, you know, for both of them. Like, they both really, really wanted that win, and and even just watching from the Dolls camp and Better's camp and Mm -hmm. seeing that reaction was, was just, it was a beautiful thing to watch. And, yeah, Federer, you know, came through at the end, uh, hitting some, Nice backhand shots, and you gotta respect the guy, man. Yeah. You know, he's well, you get the greatest that. tennis player ever. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's without, a, uh, doubt. without that's, a doubt at this point. That's so. solidified right now. Obviously, there's time, you know, till the end of time. We're gonna always be having a somewhat of a debate, but right now it's solidified. And you know, it's funny, George. You look at Federer and Nadal. We have visions of how they, how the matchups gone before. When Fed got down a break in the in the fifth, Nadal took the lead. You're like, I've seen this one before. Nadal's just gonna, gonna ride it out, and make a couple extra plays. 
Fed gets up a break, wins four straight games, serves for it, and then falls behind 15-40. You think, oh no, here we go again. But it was exactly. that serve. It was that serve again that got him out a couple inside like said, out forehands. Yeah, exactly. Just a few shots just here really, or there. Yeah, just me yeah. placing the ball at the you know at the right spot of the box and the serve. So that's that was the difference. And then I got to talk to you, George, about match point because we've seen a lot of tennis. I think more than than the general public would care to know between the two of us. <laughs> I haven't oh, yeah. I haven't seen a match at this level being determined the way it was. <laughs> a, a Hawkeye review to determine the championship. And look, quite frankly, I don't I don't blame Nadal for challenging it. It's like timeouts in football. You can't carry those home with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I almost kind of wish that he didn't challenge just because it would have made the, that moment just slightly more exciting just because, I don't know, I, I, I thought it was in, so yeah. I was just kind of like, Right, like, yeah, I don't. Again, I don't blame the doll for for challenging, but it just kind of like made lost a little, you know, a little spectacularness. Oh, in the moment, I think for Federer, but regardless, you know, his reaction at the end was just awesome. So. Yeah, I think the reaction. I actually, I'll take a counter to that. I think it was cool to see that kind of reaction. The reaction of just really finding okay. out yeah. that way. Like, to wait. Yeah. <laughs> to wait a little extra to see. He's waited five years. What's another 30 seconds? It probably felt like five years for him. The shots of his camp yeah, jumping true. up and down. That's true. And, you know, it was funny, too. I mean, Nadal's face, you kind of knew that he thought it might have been out. He was just like, well, I might as he, well. Yeah, he looked unsure. Yeah, he looked unsure. Looking at his camp, he was just kind of like, I don't know. But he was already, you could tell he was already pissed off. What <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to... Yeah, what I liked about Federer's reaction to, to before it came down that it was in was he was bouncing the ball like he had another point to play or another two points to play. And you know that it's what you have to do because if you let your guard down and that happened to be out, imagine recovering from that. Oh, yeah, that would have been, that would have been extremely, extremely interesting. Because <laughs> what, that would have made it, deuce. what, 30, it would have made a deuce? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's changed. We could have a different champion, but... Why couldn't that be out? <laughs> no, here's, here's the Nadal fan coming out of you, but no, it's... Uh, That's it's, it's the way the breaks go, and Roger Federer, 18, as I continue talking yeah. with George Pinozian on the Money Mitch effect, and let's look at Federer for a second. 18 majors, George, but he won his first in five years. He's 35 years old. He took six months off of tennis, and he walks into a Grand Slam as a 17th seed. I know he didn't beat Djokovic or Murray, but the accomplishment of the recovery at his age and getting back to the top of the mountain, I, I, can't, I can't really put into words exactly where that ranks, but I don't know many guys that could do what he just did. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody can, and that's what made this win so special for him, and I think even he said it, that this was one of the most proud grand slams that he's ever achieved because you know even himself him and Nadal said that they were they saw each other like a few weeks prior to the final and they were talking about yeah like no way we're going to be in the finals you know like no way we're going to make it like you know they just kind of they understand like who's, who's the best in the game right, right. now and they were injured and, and uh yeah so it's remarkable though you know like those six months really healed Federer's body and, and he was able to withstand any adversity and any fitness uh, problems that he, he had gone through. You know, it, it was, I think it was good that he played in Brisbane as well and kind of like a tune-up. So he played in, in Perth 
the Hopman Cup. You know, he he did well. And I even Nadal, Nadal was saying that this was the first time that he was in Australia. He's been in Australia for an entire month. So I think that really helped him kind of adjust to the time zone and kind of get familiar with the climate conditions and just really get your body kind of accustomed to to everything there, you know. Right, although Fed didn't play in anything other than the Hopman Cup. That was it. <laughs> that was oh, the, he didn't. That was, no, that was the only tournament he played before winning a major. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh okay, well, I was wrong. I'm, I'm wrong. I take it back. It's, it's, the guy's just a, a G. Let's just is. say that. <laughs> it, it still feels surreal. Like I don't, I don't really feel like it's happened. You know, wait. Like he, he, he just came back and won. Like he hasn't won in five years. He's been close, and you know, he won a major. Five years. Which is nuts, and I, and I do think, and I do think uh, before we get into the post-game trophy ceremonies, I do think Nadal. While we're not sure, obviously, with the health long term, he's playing at a level where he's going to, if if he's healthy, big caveat there, he's going to be competing at majors if he keeps playing like this. I think it's good for him. Still, just thirty years old to be back to form or close to it. I know he's not at his peak, but I mean, it's good to see Nadal, and you think there's more slams to come. Yeah, I mean, regardless of him losing in the final, he was extremely happy to, you know, make it all the way there. And he beat some good players along the way still. And this is a great boost, a boost of confidence for him, you know, leading up to the clay court season and uh, leading up to the next slam that he owns. So um, it'll be interesting kind of to see what this does, you know, to his psychological aspect of his game because I think he really needed that. And, um you know, maybe him taking some time off and working on his fitness and having his muscles and everything uh, being in recovery mode, you know, that helped him out too. So I'm excited for Nadal this year and kind of see if he can bounce back. Remember, he's only 30 years old. So mm-hmm. I know that's not the youngest in tennis, but nowadays people are dominating at 31, 32, no problem. So. Right. Still chatting with George Pinozian on the Money Mitch Effect, talking tennis. Nadal handled losing with. Great humility, very Federer-like in that regard, uh, although I got a kick out of the Kia reference, <laughs> just where he just started thanking all of his sponsors and went on a nice little Kia commercial rant. That was pretty good, but it was, yeah, good. it was good to see Nadal understand the moment, understand that there will be other opportunities. Now, Federer at the, press con- at the trophy ceremony, George, he made a comment where he was grateful. Obviously, he... he has admiration for Nadal, respects him so much, and said, you know, draws don't happen in tennis, but if they could, he would share the trophy with Nadal. And then he said that yeah. he's not sure. He said if, he's, if he doesn't come back, thank you, but this will always mean the world to him. And a lot of people were taken off guard by that. I know I was a little startled when I heard it. Do you honestly think too. it could be the last time we see Federer in Melbourne? I mean, I, I didn't think so, because if he's playing at this level... You know, I know he loves the game, and, and you know, if he's continuing on beating everybody, <laughs> except, two guys, except two guys, really, at, at this point, you know, he's going to want to keep playing. So that's why I was a little little surprised. But, you know, you know, maybe he's at the point in his life where he has four kids now, and maybe his, him and his wife have talked about kind of, you know, what's, what's in their future, and what's best for their family and, and maybe traveling consistently is not. And, you know, maybe he's having a change of heart. You know, he's always going to love the game no matter no matter what age he is, he's in. So I think Federer will continue on working in, in, uh, 
in the tennis industry after he retires as either a coach or, or something. So cause I, he just loves it. Right, he could probably take over the ATP, or <laughs> they would just give him you know, yeah. free reign. Here's my takeaway. Maybe it is wishful thinking, George, but I think it's a guy recognizing not that he's going to retire, but that he's probably not going to win Australia again. So I think that was his yeah. speech saying, I don't think I'm going to get to greet you in this setting again. I'll be playing for a few more years, but I, I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm yeah. 35 years old and that I think this is probably my last win Maybe at a major ever, maybe at Australia ever. So I thought that's all that conveyed there. But you could be right. I mean, there's there's definitely some strong possibility that he could shut it yeah. down soon. I mean, no, guys I, don't last this long. Maybe because that win was so special that he was just like, oh my god, this is like this has got to be one of the best ways to to leave the sport. No, I mean not at this, that moment, but as far as for that tournament. Right. Well, Roger Federer, 18 time champion, winning 18 majors, truly remarkable and. Before we talk a little about the women's side, George, who are some other winners? Who are some other losers, I guess, from this tournament? I know only one champion, but who had a strong showing and who obviously did not meet up to expectations on the men's draw? Obviously, uh, Dimitrov was you know, oh, yeah. kind of a big surprise to make it to the semifinals, and he was just right there, right there. I, just, I, I really would have wondered how that final would have played out if Dimitrov played Federer, you know, baby Fed versus the real Fed. That would have been cool, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe they um, could have talked about the singing video a few more times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe they could have sang the song together. Tommy Haas. There's a ceremony. Warinka, I mean, yeah, Tommy Haas comes out, takes off his shirt. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's another big winner, uh, Tommy Haas, because he just went shirtless in probably yeah, his last a, match. That was a good, that was definitely a, a good point of the... <laughs> tournament for sure yeah i mean besides the meat Zverev, i think was, was even though he lost in the doll kind of in the third or fourth round he was still pretty impressive and, and that was a very tight match and um i'm excited to see these young guys kind of like being kind of like a mainstay in these tournaments with you know team and uh you know warinka again like making the semifinals is that's a great accomplishment for him the guys just Kind of always quietly right. doing well yeah. you know, in the big tournaments. No, I agree with you on Rorinka. I think he got to the semis. We're starting to see Stan not just having these major runs, but being consistently deep into all these majors. Dimitrov was right there. I mean, he was moving so well. As far as on-court movement, I think he's up there with best in the game. Go fan making it to a quarterfinal. I think there's some definite bright spots for the next generation. I mean, if we're talking... I guess the losers in the main draw, another underwhelming performance from Marin Cilic. Still didn't see any Americans go deep. And uh, Nick Kyrgios, again, another disaster for him. But what else is new? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was a little disappointed with Jack Sock. I know everyone makes fun of me for liking Jack Sock. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was disappointed, definitely, in, in kind of how his match played out. But, you know, he was still playing great. I think he was just tired. And I, I, I still expect him to have a good year this year. Okay. And Goffin, you know, I've, I've always loved Goffin's game. I do know he's that. He's a small guy, but, you know, he gets the job done. And and uh, I don't think he's going to be able to win a slam, to be honest. But I think he can definitely be a big threat to a lot of the players on the ATP. And, George, on the women's side, Serena Williams winning her 23rd major most ever now in the open era, breaking a tie with Steffi Graf. She beats... Her sister Venus in straight sets, four and four. 
I've always been in the camp, George, that she had to wait until you made history. I wasn't willing to anoint her, but now's that day. She is unquestionably, I think, the greatest of all time. I just, I don't know who else you would put there at this point. And her ability to rebound after losses in the previous major is what I think I'm going to look at as my favorite Serena quality. I mean, personally, I, I just think the women, the women <laughs> bra in this Australian Open was just a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, I was waiting for that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for Serena to be playing Venus Williams in the final at 36 years old, of course, it's a great story for the Williams family and, and all that they've done for tennis, and it's very inspirational and where they've come from and where they grew up. Again, I, res- I respect her a lot, and I, I do look at her as one of the greatest women's tennis player or women's athlete of all time, absolutely. But I can't really give her much credit for winning this tournament mm. because I don't think she really was ever tested. And mm. the fact that she didn't even have to face the best player, uh, Angelique Kerber, right right now, I think the number one player in the world, and oh, not anymore, but... She didn't even have to face Kerber, and obviously Sharapova's not there. Yeah, Pliskova. not there. Kvitova's not there. Madison Keaton's not there. <laughs> so the list kind of goes on. Yeah. It's, just, it's kind of like, if she didn't win, it just would have been an embarrassment, almost. Yeah, I'm happy for Venus. I was rooting for her in that match, because this is another scenario where you don't expect her to get back. The Lucic Baroni story was very cool and, and very you know awesome to awesome. see her yeah. rise up from all that she's been through. But it was Serena's tournament, and Pliskova goes down, you know, before the semi, so she doesn't have to play her. Yeah, it was like it was like clockwork. But you know, I, I got to tip my cap because you're only judged by your era, and Serena's left no doubt that no one can compete with her. And, and yeah, it's not as interesting to watch. I'm in that camp with you. I think it'll be more exciting when she's not there. But I gotta respect greatness. I mean, love her or hate her, she yeah. is the best. So it's it's she dominating is, to is. watch her play. Yeah. You know, she's dominant. And hey, from your perspective, you know, the Armenian community going nuts now with her new engagement. Yeah, Congratulations. Man, you know, now she's representing my people, you know, so I'm, I'm cool with her. You know, anything that she does, if she makes some reference, you know, maybe she can learn to make some Armenian food. Okay, we should uh, be even better on my list. That, that's, gonna, that's gonna go over well, but I, I think it's gonna be. Well, your, one of your new catchphrases is, is going to be, at least around the office, it's not Ohanian, it's Ohanian. Because I feel like you've said that a hundred thousand <laughs> times in a patronizing way, mostly. But, <laughs> but you, know, you know what, I, I actually didn't even say it. I said it the American way, and if I really wanted to say it the oh, Armenian dude. way, it would be Ohanian. All right, okay, wow, there, yeah. There's a difference, so. Right, just let Ohanian hey. and Ohanian. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were saying okay. Yeah. So that was just kind of pissing me off. Right. No, I, I totally understand. I mean, imagine if his last name was Badminton. I mean, that would be brutal. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it was awesome to see him, though. Like, all of Serena's matches kind of, it was cool. Yeah. No, he was, he was very supportive, and uh, I... I was glad for the importance of the Williams sisters meeting one more time, but I mean, I'm with you. The game needs to grow a little bit, and when you have four seeds like Simona Halep just getting dumped in the first round, it's not good. But Azarenka will be back. We're praying that Kerber comes back, makes a healthy recovery. Sharapova, if she's got something left. Coco Vandeweghe was a good story. She could be the next one. Oh, I think. Yeah. I think there's some potential. It's down right now, but it could get better. We're, we're optimistic. 
A little more. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like Coco's game. And uh, she had that match. She won the first set. And honestly, she just choked. She got completely nervous. I think it really just hit her that she was in the semifinal of a Grand Slam. And um, she was right there. And I, it would have been a way better, quality-wise, it would have been a better final, Coco versus Serena, I think. But, you know, of course, yeah. the story made it. Mm-hmm. It's just an epic final on both sides of the draw, men's and women. Just great play, great legendary players playing. 100%. Well, George Pinozian, before I let you go on the Money Mitch effect, I do want to bring this up. Now, you're a man of many talents, but you had your first you had your first event for your new food business, Sweet and Hollow. What, uh, what was that like? I, and you can let the listeners in on your secret, you know, your, your vision for going forward with your company. You know, it was uh, honestly one of the best moments probably of my of my life to be honest because it, it was just a great turnout and just kind of seeing everybody's reaction to uh, the dessert and um, you know it's just not something that I invented obviously you know the dessert you know exists in the world it's not something that I invented but you know I've, I've worked really really hard up to this point to kind of bring this here and, and uh, I've spent a lot of money definitely in, uh, in making it happen so it was, it was just kind of felt rewarding to, to see some good results after a lot of hard work. And um, I'm telling you, like, you know, if you ever come to my event, any of my events, you'll see, like, how hard I'm working. It was just, like, nonstop. I was just straight rolling dough for, like, eight hours straight. I didn't even, like, use the bathroom. I didn't even have a chance to eat. Like, it was, like, not like, it was, it was awesome, though, you know. And uh, moving forward, yeah, I mean, I'm planning on doing a lot more events. And uh, hashtag two week notice. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> wow, um, this break. This really would have been breaking news. <laughs> putting it out there on the air. No, but yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it was a good moment, and uh, I'm excited to kind of what the future what the future holds for the company, and and yeah, this is a great opportunity for me to capitalize on something that's unique. It's, I'm in a unique situation, so. Right, and the dessert for everyone out there is, is chimney cakes, right? Is that the, the best way to describe it? Chimney cakes, yeah. It is a chimney cake. Uh, it's an Eastern European dessert. So uh, my next event is potentially in Pasadena, but I'm definitely already booked at LA Cookie Con show. It's like a baking convention. That's uh, the convention center in, in downtown LA in February 18th and 19th. So. We'll definitely be on the lookout for that. It's Sweet and Hollow. You can find that on Facebook and Instagram, right? Or the social media outlets. Yeah. You can find it on there. And yeah, all, all over. Yeah, come go, like the page. Like the page. High five. Check it out. Yeah, come to a show. You'll get a high five. You know, maybe a show, maybe a concert. It might get a little heated. Yeah, but... <laughs> I, I was dancing a little. I had some Craig David bumping. It was very authentic. This wow. It's a. Uh, I don't know if there's an age limit. We'll stop there. Is it 18, 21 and up? Or? Craig David. Yeah, but, uh, all right. Well, oh, yeah. You know, that was good. We got. I, I really wish it works out for you, obviously, and uh, it kept my streak alive. I don't think I can have you on the show without Craig David making an appearance. So the streak continues. So. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. George Pinozian on the Money Mitch Effect. Check out his business, Sweet and Hollow. And yeah, keep watching tennis because the Australian Open proved that who knows what could happen. Big thanks to George Pinozian for coming back on the Money Mitch Effect. 
You had to mention Craig David. I think that's just part of his contract at this point, but he knows tennis very well. Pleasure to chat with him. And best of luck to his business, Sweet and Hollow. If you're downtown near the convention center, definitely check them out February 18th, as he mentioned. Something to see. All right, now it's time to talk to Mike Indergaard, a Minnesota friend of mine. Went to school together, played a little puck. We're going to talk about the NHL All-Star Weekend, all the festivities. We're going to get into the second half of the NHL season. Five key points I brought up with him, key storylines that were on my mind. I grilled Mike rapid fire. He delivered. Here's that interview now. It's Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now joining us on the line on the Money Mitch Effect, Mike Indergaard from the great state of Minnesota. He's going to join the show to talk hockey. Mike, now your second time on the show, an official reoccurring guest. Thanks for joining the program. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Well, there's a lot going on in the sports world, but we're always there's always going to be time to be made for the sport of hockey. And we just had the NHL All-Star Weekend right out here in Los Angeles. There was a lot of festivities, but before I get into that, though, Mike, I do want to talk a little bit on an aside. There was uh, an epic tennis match the other day, the Australian Open final, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. And the reason I bring this up with you is because it ended on a replay call. And I was commenting to my friend the other day that the only other time I'd seen that was in a college hockey game that we both went to together about six years ago. Yeah, that's right. Pretty unforgettable game. You know, it the was the longest reviews yeah. I've ever <laughs> remember. Yeah, I'd say so. It was Nebraska, Omaha, and Michigan, and Michigan won on a review that originally wasn't a goal, was overturned to be a goal. Very close call there. The difference between that time and yesterday, though, Mike, was that the original call was confirmed. It wasn't overturned. And I didn't share an elevator with Rafael Nadal and his camp. So that's the only <laughs> difference there. But, yeah, it was uh, Dean Blaze as the coach in Nebraska-Omaha. He was not happy that day, as we can expect. And I just bring that up because those are the only two times I can remember in sports where such a big uh, moment, a playoff-level moment, was decided on and got a coach's challenge. So there you go. But all right, Mike Innergaard here to talk NHL hockey. It was the All-Star game this past weekend. And I'll start with this, Mike. As a big-time hockey guy like myself, what's your thought on the current format of the All-Star game? There's been a lot of discussions. They always try to tweak it, like a lot of All-Star games do in different leagues, to make the fans interested. Do you think the NHL's at a good place right now with the All-Star game? You know, I do. I, I was pretty entertained, especially by the final. I, I do like the three-on-three format. I think it opens things up. And I think the players, uh, at least, are taking it pretty seriously. You know, obviously, there's not a whole lot to play for other than splitting up a million-dollar check at the end. But, you know, I think the players did a good job of bringing it to the table. And uh, some of the semifinal games, so the, the Central versus Pacific game, was thoroughly dominated by the Pacific team. But the the final was really good, I thought. Um, nearly went into overtime and uh, a lot of back and forth action, good defense as well as offense, and uh, I was thoroughly entertained. 
Yeah, I can't complain too much. I do enjoy the format. It's a little odd to see at times. And I think the big thing, like you said, is just getting the guys invested. The fans want to be entertained. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but it all starts and ends with the players wanting to take part in it. So I think it's really cool the way they do the three-on-three format. The one knock might be the length. Uh, at times, it does seem a little long. But that's a, a very miniature uh, complaint there in the grand scale of things. And also, Mike, I think it helps that you're getting a lot of the legends involved in the game. I mean, I, I think it's a little different when you got guys like Gretzky coaching. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I, I think in an event like that, it works uh, having Gretzky there because you know, obviously the players and the fans are, are very involved and love being around him. It was probably tough for him back when he was coaching uh, for real. Uh, when he coached the Coyotes, just because a guy like that, of that caliber and that skill, there's just certain things you can't teach that he had. But I think in an all-star format like this, where it was kind of loose and relaxed and uh, on the bench, uh, I think he brought some good pointers to the players, and they uh, seemed to respond well. Right, and there's certain things you don't understand, like why can't someone score a bunch of goals the, the way he did? Uh, I think yeah. that's part of the part of the area too but you could see I mean Gretzky was having a good time he was enjoying himself laughing with the boys on the bench and even one of coaches challenge in there so I thought it was really exciting to see uh, for the sport which you know it, it can always use hockey's doing all right but it can always use any boost of excitement and enthusiasm that it gets I do want to start with what was or talk back to what was the original start of all-star weekend and that was Friday night with the NHL 100 reveal where I thought was pretty cool I think you would agree with that Mike having all the living players that are recognized in the top 100 in the league and there was one name that we actually did talk about Mike the only the only name that I had any beef with not being on the list as far as active guys go is Evgeny Malkin and I'll put it like this I have all the respect in the world for the players in the past generation being a student of the game in that regard but when you're gonna have a great deal of active guys on that list it doesn't include Evgeny Malkin, that's where I take a little bit of an exception. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, agree with you. We did uh, talk about that a little bit, and I think, you know, there there might have been some people thinking along the lines that, you know, including Jonathan Taves in the NHL 100 instead of Malkin, some people may be thinking that Taves was a, is a little better leader and uh, defensive player, but... In the end, I, you just you can't pass up on Malkin. The guy is an unbelievable offensive force. He's won championships, and he brings teammates up around him every night he plays. So I think he should have definitely been included in that 100. Yeah, I mean, this points per game in the quote-unquote dead puck era that we've seen in, in the last couple of generations, Mike, is 14th all-time. So he's somebody that his stats add up well with anybody who's played the game. And he has one. I know winning takes into consideration, so I think he belonged on that list. The other thing, too, is and a name I'll throw out who I'm a big fan of, Duncan Keith. Mike, I know he's won a lot. I know he's done well. But looking at who's next and who's playing currently, I don't know that he's on the list if we do this again in five, definitely ten years. No, I, you know, with the young talent coming into the NHL now, and just, I mean, you look at these guys and 18, 19 years old, and, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, these guys spent 
years in the minors before they even got a call up, and now they're, they're coming up and they're really showing their stuff. And I mean, we saw that all the way back to the World Cup of Hockey with the the uh, Team North America, you know, going far and doing quite well. It's just amazing the young talent the league has, and it's you know it puts a lot of pressure on those older guys. And I would have to agree that you know five years down the line, we probably couldn't include Duncan Keith in an NHL 100. I mean, I just think there's no way that Eric Carlson and Drew Doughty are on this list <laughs> when their careers are over <laughs> based on how they're dominating. Just look at the Norris Trophy votes. I mean, it's going to be a seesaw probably for the next decade between those two. Yep. Uh, still, As I still sit here talking with Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch effect, all right, let's go to the actual festivities on Saturday. And I wasn't planning on talking about this, Mike, but you know what we have to talk about the All-Star Celebrity Game, and I think you know what I'm going to bring up here. There is probably no better way to get back in the good graces of uh, the public than what Chris Pronger did on Saturday, Mike, and a photo op of all time, one for the record books, roughing up Justin Bieber a little bit in the corner. My initial reaction was on the verge of humor and, I think, tears of joy. I think that's the best way to describe what I saw. You know, I think uh, most people would agree with you. For the most part, uh, I think some people are maybe growing a little tired of semantics that uh, you know Justin Bieber has pulled. And even in the hockey world, you know, I can think of an instance where after the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup, he went into the locker room and and stood on the Blackhawk logo, taking a selfie with the Stanley Cup and. As uh, two guys that have played hockey a long time, that's just that's a big no-no. You don't go into the, the locker room and uh, you avoid the logo in the center of the room. And but I, I think Parker doing that was was definitely uh, hilarious, and um, it brought some uh, attention to that game that I think was actually positive. Right. Yeah. You definitely don't camp out on the logo. If it's an honest mistake, <laughs> it's an honest mistake. You just don't do it again. You get off it immediately. But you know, he was camping out on it, taking pictures and. I will say this too, Mike, people don't realize outside the hockey community, a lot of people that saw this story, just how maniacal Chris Pronger was. <laughs> like he was an absolute <laughs> savage on the ice. So of all the people that do it, that's I think what heightened the moment where he kind of just grabbed them and, and you know, said you're not in control anymore, Beaver. You know, I'm, I'm, in, yep. I'm in control now. I thought it was just fantastic. And the sheer difference in size was uh, funny in and of itself. Uh, there was a good foot and a half, it almost seemed like different between the two of them and the weight difference, uh, I, I won't even uh, begin to guess as to what that was, but it was it was pretty funny. It was, a, it was definitely a moment that we'll treasure, and I think it belongs on Chris Pronger's plaque in his Hall of Fame bust. I really think so. <laughs> Send that to Toronto, that photo, <laughs> right now. And Chris Pronger being <laughs> one of the only active players I can remember to play in a, uh, in a celebrity game. So he's got that going <laughs> That's right. Technically, he's still on the books right now. That is true. He hasn't <laughs> officially retired. He's also in the Hall of Fame as, a, uh, as an active player. But all right, let's move on now to the Saturday, the skills competition, the main attraction on Saturday. Mike, I was lucky enough to go to this event. And my initial reaction, while it was you know, definitely a little different, the one thing that I think every fan can appreciate that was there and that watches it on TV was just the sheer collection of skills and it was the diversity of skills you have a little bit of everything at that event and I think more than maybe any of the other sports it's not showcased the way it is in the NHL yeah I would agree you know that just the, the sheer variety and 
for the most part, you know, the players are really into it and they're, they're competitive guys by nature and it's just fun to see, you know, specific aspects of the game be singled out and uh, we can totally see the skill and technique that goes into each of them. You also got to appreciate the fact that the Ovechkins, the Crosbys, you know, Kane and Taves are in that class now. They keep coming back. You know, they don't, they haven't grown tired of it. They keep showing up for the events. I know in like basketball, for example, it's always the young guys. It seems like the veterans don't want to be there anymore. I think there's something to be said for a guy like Ovechkin, who's an entertainer, Crosby, who's the face of the league, to be there along with the up-and-comers like McDavid and Matthews. Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, you know, it's great to see those guys there because a truly an all-star game and skills competition should be a showcase of the best of the best and. I think the NHL gets it right, and the players understand that having the best of best there is good for the league as well as their teams and themselves. So I'd put it in a couple different classes, Mike, of things that went down at that skills competition. Just missing out on the list would probably be, uh, on a funnier note, all the Russian players just having a nice little powwow at center ice all game. They just didn't <laughs> contact with anybody else. Ovechkin, Tarasenko, Bobrovsky, and Kucherov. But the serious side of it was the guys that sold the show. You had Shea Weber's 102-plus mile-an-hour shot. Not his record, but still winning the award handily. You had Crosby winning the accuracy skills thing, also scoring in the shootout. Connor McDavid winning fastest skater. A couple other things as well. But if there's one that stands out to you, Mike, at All-Star Skills this year, what was it? You know, I, I think going back to the hardest shot, you know, I was thoroughly surprised that a guy like Patrick Laine, you know, 19-year-old kid, had the second hardest shot at 101.7 miles an hour, which was a little over one mile an hour behind Weber. Uh, I think that kind of stood out to me and surprised me. Uh, I knew he was a, a skilled player, and I knew he he's a bigger guy, and but uh, I was actually pretty surprised that he had as hard a shot as he did. Right, and... I'll go one further with Line. I watched him in the shooting accuracy event, and I was just taken, I know he didn't win it, but I was just taken by his release. I had never really seen it. it almost like he, it's almost like he whips his stick. You know, he keeps it really flat, but it's so quick that, you know, you can start to see when you see that stuff in person why he's such a deadly goal scorer at the age of 19. That was a great moment as well, but McDavid's the one that stood out for me. To see him skate as fast as he can in person, Mike, was an absolute blur. And I will also say that the NHL kind of hosed him because there was no way he wouldn't have broken Dylan Larkin's fastest lap record if they gave him a, a running start. Yeah, you know, and for a lot of these guys, you know, you can see how fast they skate in a skills competition like this, but a guy like McDavid, I mean, he looked incredibly fast in the fastest skater competition, but he looked like that all the time. And big-time game situations, he just looks so much faster than everyone else out there, and, and I definitely think, too, that if he'd been given a uh, running start, he would have for sure broken uh, Larkin's record. The stride is just smooth, and getting in and out of the turns is, is what you really, as students of the game, people that have played the game, you really do appreciate just how technically sound he is. With his God-given abilities, I think, you know, we're looking at uh, the future of the league. That's a, a clear no-brainer. The game itself, which was played in three-on-three -three format, though I should point out, Mike, that it had to be the quote of the year, Gretzky saying that him, Lemieux, and Orr would have been pretty good at three-on-three -three hockey in their day. I think that's the understatement <laughs> of a lifetime. Uh, yeah. That would have been the case back in the day, and they all would have 
been on the same team. No way anybody beats them. I mean, that's just three of arguably three of the best players, probably three of the top five best players to ever play this game. Yeah, I think uh, him saying that was was humorous and also a huge understatement. Yeah, I'd say you better win the face-off or you're in trouble. That would be my advice yeah. I'm uh, talking to the other team. And I really did like what Mario said. And, yeah, yeah, we just wait, me and Wayne would just wait at the blue line for Bobby to bring the puck up the ice. I thought that was really good, too. <laughs> but the actual game, two points I want to make here. The Pacific Division, another good showing. I know they didn't win it, but they thrashed the Central. They get to the final. It was a heartbreaker to the Metropolitan. Mike, this is two years in a row with the Pacific Division, though oddly enough, not known as the strongest division in hockey. I'm wondering if there's, I don't want to say a negative correlation, but if there's something that we can take from this, that they have all these great skill players, but they're kind of you know struggling when it comes to winning games in the actual National Hockey League. Well, I think that just speaks to the competitiveness of their uh, of their division. You know, they they got tough games. They they have to travel farther than anyone else uh, when they play, and you know, I think they kind of spend the whole season beating up on each other, and that's why a lot of these teams have been so strong in the playoffs as of late. Yeah, even the poor teams. You look at a uh, Phoenix or Arizona, I should say, or Vancouver. That you know, Mike Smith. If Vancouver is playing well at home, they can be stout defensively. They're not easy games. They're not really gimmies. The California teams like to beat up on each other. Then you throw in Connor McDavid reviving the Oilers, and it's something to see. But I do think, Mike, none of us were really surprised that the Metropolitan Division won, given how well they've been all season. And quite frankly, Mike, looking at that roster, I mean, they would have clearly been the odds-on favorite to win. Oh, for sure. I mean, they... Best division in hockey, as far as I'm concerned. Anytime you can combine the top overall point scoring team in the NHL and uh, along with uh, the likes of a Pittsburgh and uh, or a Columbus, a team that's been really hot, they showed their true colors and really not a surprise that they won. Yeah, I was thinking, how many first overall picks do they have on that team? I mean, Jesus, you, you look at Ovechkin and Crosby. You had Tavares, who was happy to play a game not in Brooklyn for that for that team. Cam Atkinson having a great year. And the goaltending, I think two of the best three goalies in the NHL right now with Holtby and Bobrovsky. I mean, that's a that's a dangerous roster. And, you know, you had Wayne behind the bench, guys, if they don't have a reason to play enough. And then it's, yeah. a, and then it's a guy like Wayne Simmons that wins the MVP award. So it was uh, an interesting game, and I think one that the fans ultimately – took away enjoying. I, I would have to agree with that, and I think uh, L.A. did a good job putting on the events. Something that I actually read yesterday, I didn't know the the gal that sang the national anthem was actually a fill-in at the last second. Right. Uh, Courtney Douglas, I believe, was her name. Uh, it's a story coming out of All-Star Weekend that not a lot of people know about. She was a member of the ICE crew at the Staples Center, and they told her 10 minutes before the national anthem she was singing, and I think she went out there and nailed it. She did, and that is pressure personified right there. That is coming up in the clutch because you are going to fill in. That's not your job. You didn't prepare. You're, you're getting called on the fly, and it is a nationally televised all-star game. So well, well done by her. That was uh, phenomenal. As I continue here talking with Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch Effect, all right, before we wrap up, this discussion about the NHL, Mike. I had five points I wanted to bring up with you. I'm going to keep it to that in the interest of time. 
about going forward into the NHL season uh, in the second half. And we'll start with number one, and that's Connor McDavid, Mike. There's only been two players younger than McDavid to lead the league in scoring. Crosby and Gretzky by one day, going into the second half of the season. So I think we can say that while the best is yet to come for Connor McDavid, the best so far has been pretty good. Yeah, I, I have to agree. He has lived up to everything that has been talked about and built about uh, for him, and he truly is a treat to watch. And I mean, he's going to be down the line, arguably the new face of the league once Crosby starts to wind down, if that ever even happens. But, I mean, McDavid has totally lived up to everything we have heard from about him and come to expect from him. Well, I like that note about Crosby because even at the All-Star game, you know, we're, we're there, I'm, I'm there with my sister, and we're not big Crosby fans, but we're just like, the guy's so good. Like, you can't deny it. Like, even the most, <laughs> even the most uh, vengeful Crosby hater has to acknowledge that. And I think for McDavid's case, he has to get to playing defense a little better. That's the next part of his game. He's still young. There's obviously time for that. But I'm interested to see if they're able to grind out some wins when they get meaningful, now that they're not the laughing stock that they were. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, not only should his offensive abilities continue to grow, but if he can continue to grow his leadership abilities uh, with him being the captain of that team and maybe leading them into the playoffs or leading them into some, some big uh, clutch wins, will go a long way to rounding out his game and, and uh, putting them on even a higher pedestal. So, Mike, number two that I want to bring up is the Washington Capitals, who lead the NHL in points. This is the second straight year at the All-Star break. They've done that, 72 points on the year. We know about their shortcomings in the playoffs, including last year when they did win the President's Trophy. But I look at this team. They were chasing Columbus the past month. They caught them. And I look at one stat in particular. Their power play is outside the top ten for the first time in about five years. So is it fair to say, is it scary to say, that this team could actually be better in the second half of the season? I think it's definitely fair to say. Um, you know, watching them play, they're, they're so deep. You know, they can get production from all their lines. They've got solid defensive players. They've got a phenomenal goaltender uh, in Holtby. And, um, you know, every team, no matter how good they are, always has something they can work on. But I, I don't think it's out of the question to say that this team could be even better going forward. Right, and I will continue to say this. The Columbus Blue Jackets and the rest of the Metropolitan Division were the best thing to happen to the Capitals. I know it's tough. I know it's going to be hard for seeding, and they're all going to have to beat each other. But this is a team that wants to win a championship, and it's good that, they don't have to, that they're not able to coast to the playoffs. They're going to be playing meaningful games all the way till the playoffs start. I think that's the best thing that could have happened to this team. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, looking down the line, they're... You know, the top four teams in the division are just nine points apart, which, you know, isn't too terribly hard to make up in the hockey world. And they're going to have to stay with the, the pedal to the metal all the way down. And I think that only prepares them more for the playoffs. So the third thing I want to bring up now, Mike, going out west, the team that is leading the Western Conference in points. And if I have this right, it's the first time they've ever done that in their short franchise's history, Mike. The Minnesota Wild. They come into the NHL second half of the season with 69 total points. Now, you're a Minnesota native now. Are you buying the hype, or, or is there a greater buzz? I know it's the state of hockey, but is there a greater buzz around this team that they could actually accomplish something in the playoffs? You know, I think this year there definitely is because they have 
depth. All four lines, phenomenal lines, and they're not going to completely pound you out of the building with physicality, but they're, they're skilled, uh, they're so fast, they've got arguably one of the best goaltenders in hockey, and I think people around here are really starting to buy into the hype. They're a fun team to watch. They bring it every night. They play in front of Arrakis home crowd all the time, and I think they're the real deal, and right now they the team to beat in the West. And I can vouch for that Rockets home crowd, by the way. But in all, in all seriousness, I think the Dubnik factor makes this team legitimate overnight. The fact that they have probably the Vesna goalie winner right now. I know there's still a half of a season. You have Holpe and Bobrovsky hot on his heels, but he has played better than anyone this year. Offensively, they've gotten depth. I think they continue to get better. And Bruce Boudreau, I mean, say what you want about him, but he knows how to get the most out of his roster, at least in the regular season. I wonder, though, what's going to happen down the stretch with this team. Not playing the Hunter. Now they're the hunted team. Like, they've always been so good, end of the regular seasons, just sneaking into the playoffs. You know, now they're at the top of the food chain. I'm interested to see how they handle that in respect to previous seasons. Yeah, you know, I think it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, we could be looking at a similar situation to what the Washington Capitals have faced in the past. You know, and, and Bruce Boudreau, I think, uh, can get the guys on Minnesota ready to play with a target on their back and can keep things going. Yeah, you know when Minnesota gets going at home, especially when Prince's Let's Go Crazy gets going, it's going to be a tough place to play, especially come playoff time. Still chat with Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch Effect. A couple more points I want to bring up. We'll stay in that division, Mike, a team near and dear-ish to both of our hearts. Has there been a major problem, in your opinion, with the St. Louis Blues this year? Because you see them play one night, and they can beat the Pittsburgh Penguins on the road. But then the next night, they can lose to one of the worst teams in the league at home. What's gone wrong in St. Louis, and how serious is it? Well, you know, they're definitely a team, uh, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of a team. I think they've got definite issues with goaltending and I kind of think that the whole situation with Hitchcock uh, the coach him being it's his last season and having his success waiting on the bench I think that has kind of brought some unneeded friction and uh, confusion to some of the players and you know they're just it's kind of weird to watch him play because like you were saying one night they they can look like the best team in hockey, and the next night they, they don't look like they belong in the playoffs. So, you know, down the line here, it's going to be interesting to see if they can pull together and get in and stay strong or if they're going to falter down the stretch. The goaltending for St. Louis has been bad, like borderline historically bad. If you look at the numbers, it's just sad downright. I think part of that is Jake Allen has never had a full season. And, and I know Brian Elliott's struggling in Calgary, but they've never really had be the guy before on a team with expectations. I think that's part of it. But the, uh, the Hitchcock dynamic, I keep coming back to that because I do, it's unique. I don't think he's completely checked out, and I do think the, the locker room respects him. But there is that elephant in the room that this guy's probably not going to be here next year. Some of the players might not be there next year, some big contract years as well. I think it just oh, yeah. makes for added chaos there. And I think there's a ton of talent on this team. They still have a, a lot of the core that beat the Blackhawks in the first round last year. But the division's not making it any easier, with the exception of the Colorado train wreck organization. 
I think everybody in there is going to be out for blood when they play the Blues. Oh, for sure. You know, they, every team in that division knows that they've got a fighting chance going into the night, going into the night that they play them. So I think down the stretch, you know, the Blues are really going to have to dig deep and uh, find that next year continue uh, their recent streak of making it to the playoffs. Yeah, the Blues have also owned that division in regular season matchups, so that's in the back of a lot of these teams' minds as well. And then finally, Mike Indergaard, the last question, the last point I'm going to bring up. I want to know, point blank, if this will be the first time since you were, I think, two years old that your Detroit Red Wings missed the playoffs. Is the streak going to end this year, or do they keep it going? The streak is going to end this year. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, their team in transition... You know, they've got some young guys coming up that are pretty good, but, uh, you know, don't don't quite understand the rigors of what, what playing in the NHL means. And uh, the streak is going to end this year. Um, I just I don't see them making it back into the playoffs. You know, I like to think that it could maybe keep going, and I just I don't even say this as a Red Wings fan. I say this as somebody just enamored and just fascinated by the fact that they've been able to do this. It's It's virtually impossible in professional sports, but... The Red Wings have been able to do that through good coaching, good management, and leadership in that locker room. But I agree. I would be shocked. I'd put it at about 20% that they keep it going. Uh, They are in the Atlantic, which helps. But, yeah, the roster's in transition. Detsuk's no longer there. Zetterberg's rounding third and heading home. And the next generation needs some reinforcements. I would, though, like to see, Mike, a little better second half from Dylan Larkin. You know, he played so well last year. I think you know he's had a little bit of a sophomore slump this year. Still time left, but I like to see a little more from him in the second half. Yeah, you know, and that team needs him because he is the face of that franchise going forward. And, you know, if they can put together a string of solid string of wins, I think that would go a long way up in them to next season and beyond. Right, and then I, I can't forget Athens to see you. You know, how how often do we see a Greek hockey player? I have to. Bring him up. He's looked good at times too. So gotta <laughs> gotta rep for my boy. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's kind of a snaky looking dude with kind of a skinny, tall, skinny stature, but he sure has a lot of skill and uh, it's been fun to watch. All right, Mike. Thanks for uh, Mike Indergard. Thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. And because it's the week, I'll let you go with this. Who do you think wins the Super Bowl? Well, I mean, if I being a betting man, um, <laughs> I, I would have to put my money on the, the Patriots, but I would like to see the Falcons win, not going to lie. I would like to see some, some fresh blood in there, but uh, you know, I am looking forward to the game, looking forward to everything that comes with it, and I guess if I, if I really had to put my money down on it, I would, I would have to go with the Patriots. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough, and I think the rest of America... Outside of the New England area, agrees with that second half that you'd like to see the Atlanta Falcons win. But all right, Mike Indergard, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect and talking hockey. This won't be your last appearance, so we expect to hear from you soon. Sounds great. Can't wait to be back on. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Thanks again to Mike Indergard and George Pinozian for taking time out of their day to talk sports on the Money Mitch Effect, which, as always, you can find on SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes by just searching Money Mitch Effect. It'll pop right up. You can follow me, Mitch Michaels, on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. And I want to thank everybody out there for listening. I don't do that enough. 
it was another good month of January. A lot of people out there listening and subscribing, and I want to say thank you. February is up next. I think we're all excited for a good February. And the other podcast episode this week of the Money Mitch Effect will be a Super Bowl preview. It's going to be a lengthy Super Bowl discussion. A couple guests lined up. You're not going to want to miss that. We're going to talk all the action on the field, the preparation, and some prop bets. Because who doesn't like a good prop bet to see how long the anthem is? And some other things you're going to find very, very interesting. I'm Mitch Michaels. Once again, thanks for listening to the Money Mitch Effect. And we'll see you next time.